Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's gospel again, and we're going to be looking at chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. This is a a new series that I'm going to take you through in this chapter, and it's a series on answering accusations. What I found when I looked at chapter 12 is that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is coming under siege, coming under attack from his enemies and those who want to discredit him by discrediting his message. If you want to discredit the man, you discredit the message. If you want to discredit the message, you discredit the man. They try to get at him in any way that they can. But the story doesn't end with Jesus. If you've been in the Christian life or walk for any period of time and put yourself out there and your faith out there, you know that we are promised persecution. We're promised to come under attacks just like Jesus did. It's no different treatment that the master received than does the servants or the slaves. If you're a follower of Christ, you're under Christ. You are the body of Christ. So you will, as Paul said, bear the marks of the body of Christ. We'll take the hits for Jesus Christ. We don't have a martyr complex. We're not trying to um, pick a fight with anyone or be um, harmed in any way. But when you stand for truth, it does cut cross grain against a culture that wants its flesh, wants it's sin that wants to be left alone in the very presence of Christ, the very word of Christ um, ensues kind of an attack. It, it, it sets the stage for a battle. And we need to know the schemes that Satan comes up with because there's nothing new under the sun. The tactics are the same. The lies of the father of lies are the same. And so because these attacks will cycle and recycle, we can see them coming if we'll just but watch our champion, our hero, Jesus Christ, as he is assaulted and then he is perfect in the way that he responds both in um, self-deprecating humility, always exalting his father, always on mission, always going along the path all the way to the cross. But along the way, though he does not revile in return, he does battle back. And the question I would ask you is, what does that look like for you and me? What does it look like to fight the good fight of faith? What does it look like to not revile in return like Jesus is said by 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not revile in return. He didn't respond in kind. He didn't react in the flesh. He couldn't do it. He was perfect. The Lamb of God, he's our perfect example of not doing that. We want to be like the suffering servant. But are we just supposed to lay there idle and take the hits? Well, if it was as simple as just being persecuted, I think we would say yes. Yeah, this world is not our home. We're here to be Christ, to live as Christ. But the Bible does not preach passivity. It still calls for us to fight. To contend, what did Paul do? Paul, when he was uh, talking about his life and ministry through the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is an autobiographical um, portrayal of him being attacked by super apostles, false apostles who were original Greek language, who pair apostles. We are better than Paul apostles. So they were trying to dog his character. They said all kinds of things about his teaching and life and character, tried to undo him so they could undo his message. What he said is, listen, I want to come in gentleness, I want to come in weakness, but uh, if you don't stop the attack, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's not self-speak. I know a lot of people go, well, I'm taking my thoughts captive. I understand that application. He's 
battling false teachers. He's saying, I'm bringing spiritual weaponry. I'm going to destroy your arguments against me. And I'm going to take them caged captive to Jesus. That's what Paul was. He was a warrior. He was commissioning Timothy to go into battle, be SEAL Team 6 for Jesus. That was First and Second Timothy. It's a battle. It is. We're supposed to engage it. Satan in the original Hebrew language means accuser. Job 1 and 2, he accused, Satan accused Job to God. Zechariah 3, he's the accuser before the throne of God, trying to accuse those who are advocated by Jesus Christ. You know that throne room dynamic, Revelation 12, 10, same thing. These are lies meant to hamstring God's messengers. But they need to be familiar to us so we know how to respond when they're there. You know, it's one thing to be accused of something that you've actually done. It's one thing for somebody to drag out your dirty laundry and expose you for what you've been humbled by in your life. And we don't like that. Uh, the Bible says it's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression, to, to cover it. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's not that we don't deal with sin. It's just that we don't bring it back up. We don't dig it back out and parade it in front of people because we love people within the body of Christ. It's the covering ministry of the gospel. And we love that, but people aren't always as nice as gospel citizens. And so we get accused of things that we've done or people bring things up to hurt us. That's bad. What's worse is a false accusation. False accusations are like bullets. You'd rather take a real bullet than be maligned, slandered, falsely accused, taken out, receiving the gut punches from enemies. Our whole culture this day is trying to hamstring people who are oftentimes good Christian people just trying to preach the gospel. And then we're called um, haters, people who are pervading hate speech and the CRT movement is trying to leverage this um, victim culture saying we're all victims and so you are the oppressors you're the people who are who are not um, who are not backing off people want to accuse us of being oppressive and that's got to be responded to in a right way in a godly way what is the solution how do we fight the good fight of faith live like Jesus live in a persecuted situation. Well, I've heard it said this way, and I love this. We're not fighting for ourselves, and you don't fight other people directly. What you do is you fight not people, but you fight for truth. I remember early in my um, uh, you know, relationship with Judy. She's not in the room right now, I don't think. But anyway, we can talk to her later. We, early in our marriage, um, I just remember saying to her, look, uh, when we have tension... Just know in my heart of hearts, I'm not trying to win. I don't want to win. And I think that's the key. When somebody attacks you, don't try to win. The goal is not to be better. The goal is not to be validated. The goal is not to be dignified. The goal is to fight for truth. It's to, it's to give glory to God. It's to speak truth to people in love. It is. We will take hits for Christ, but we speak to the glory of God. And you use the Bible to hold it up like a mirror to show where there's error. And you do it gently. And if that rubs the wrong way, then you at that point have to let the chips fall where they may. But you stand on truth. 
First Timothy chapter 1, 18 and 19, and 2 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 14. These are both the introductory chapters of these epistles, these battle, these battle books on how to fight the good fight of faith. I had my twin boys in my office this week, and they were talking to me about, hey, who is it that guards the gospel in your life? This sort of wild question is hitting me. Is it God or is it you? And that's one of those questions where it's, yes, yes, God guards us while we guard his gospel. Listen to this. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, This charge I entrust to you, verse 18, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 goes this way, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Here it is. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I may not win every fight, I may not win every debate, I may not win every challenge, but I'm not going to let go of the gospel. That's the point. He's entrusted it to me, he's got me, and I've got his gospel. I don't want to fumble the football, right? I want to keep the truth going. So what does this mean? Is it, is it wise to, to live the life with sort of a, a battle mindset? Well, I think it's important to understand that we want to exalt the truth. I heard a professor say one time to me in college, I, I kind of like this illustration. He was a little bit self-deprecating, like it's a little weird. But he said he, he was growing a tulip garden, and he loves his tulips. You know, it's springtime, and, and we'll think about that. He loves his flowers, but he said, oh, the leaves will blow into my tulip garden and get all around him, and it'll mess it up. But he said, and the leaves are the picture of the false teachers and heresies and lies that come. And the tulips are about like your life holding up the truth. That's the analogy. And he said, the leaves are there. And I just want to rake them out. But then a stronger wind hit and gale forces hit. And had those leaves not been there around buffering and buttressing these flowers, they would have been wiped out. So you say, how does that analogy apply? Well, the tough times come, the lies are given, the accusations are made. And when you think you're at your worst, you're actually holding the truth strongest. Through weakness, you become strong. Listen, without Pharaoh's magicians, Moses' miracles would have looked like no big deal. Without prophets of Baal, the true prophets like Elijah wouldn't be able to pray fire down from heaven. Without the pride of Saul, you would think of David as just an emotional king. Without the super apostles of 2 Corinthians, Paul's words where he said, my grace is sufficient for you, power is perfected in weakness, all of that just would have fallen flat. Without the Antichrist, you would not see Christ Jesus as lamb and lion in heaven as the exalted savior. It's all these things that, that come into our lives that are difficult, that are hard, difficult to work through. There are those realities that make you stronger where you go, listen, I've got to dig deep and I've got to hang on to the word of God and I've got to meet this challenge with truth. You say, sometimes I don't have the answer. I don't have Bible recall on the fly. Well, just tell somebody, look, just pause. 
I mean, I know you've said that. Let me just go away and do some Bible study. You know, Google for some verses that works. And then come back with truth and just say, hey, can we have a Bible study about that? I want to answer you with gentleness and with truth. It's how people come to Christ. They get blown away by the Bible. Not by you. Not by your, you know, great smile or, you know, your winsome personality. It's the truth that saves. That's the seed of the word of God. And Jesus, in our text, relies on truth. We're going to be looking at eight accusations, answering eight accusations against Jesus over this series. This is accusation numero uno, the first one. Jesus, you're a nonconformist. I'm going to put it a different way. I think I would have titled it this way. You're an insubordinate. You're an insubordinate. Have you ever been called an insubordinate? That one feels real good, you know? Here's the law, Jesus. We're the Pharisees. We're judge, jury, and executioner. You're out of bounds, and you don't care, and we're calling you out in front of your men, and that's what this first section is doing, verses 1 through 8. Let me read it to you real quick. Verse 1, chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is It was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Let's stop there. First accusation. Jesus, you're a nonconformist. You're out of bounds. This is a reverse psychological method. They're trying to trap Jesus and bind him with the law by saying you're outside the law. It's the person in, you know, grade school that's always looking for somebody to get them in trouble, right? Oh, you know, I still remember this. I have PTSD. You're not cutting, you know, the right way. You're coloring out of the lines. Teacher, teacher, this person's bad. That's what they were doing. It doesn't really graduate from that. It was, begins with, if you're taking an outline, an action, What was going on? It was at that time. It was a providential time. First point is Jesus is a nonconformist and it's an action. He went through the good. They went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. It's a it's a time that matters because the Lord had designed this. You say, did the Lord design for Jesus to be attacked? Well, in his providence, yes, he's not responsible for the sin, but he is responsible for the setting. That's how it works. That's why we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, when we're in this setting in the world and Satan's coming after us, give us deliverance. Give us a good heart response to the the tough trial that's around the corner. That's what's happening. It's the Sabbath. That actually connects up with chapter 11 in the flow of Matthew's writing. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's quoting Jesus in verse 28. This is what Nathan was uh, talking about earlier as we were worshiping. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That word rest connects directly to Sabbath. Sabbath and rest are synonymous. We're going to pick that up next week and unpack that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was saying, look, don't live under the law. 
Don't live under the works yoke, this big heavy burden on your back as you're like a farm animal trying to plow hard to make yourself right with God. That's no way to live. That's false religion. Throw that yoke off and put on the grace yoke. Replace the works yoke with the grace yoke because going with the gospel, going in the freedom of Christ is the way to progress in the Christian life. We are obedient to Christ, but he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit by his grace to do that. And so out of that, Matthew builds in this account that happened on the Sabbath where his disciples, where Jesus and his disciples are in the grain fields. They're probably up somewhere around the Sea of Galilee still. He's picked, hand-selected, as we learned in uh, chapter 10, how Jesus hand-selected his 12 by name. They're the missionaries to the Jews in these Jewish towns around Galilee, and they're doing the miracle ministry. They're preaching the gospel. Jesus is healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. He's delivering people, and the gospel message is being vindicated and going out during this time. The, the, the disciples, though, were human beings, just like Jesus, fully human. They're hungry, and so they're doing the work of the ministry and they're out in grain fields and they just pop heads off of grain and they start eating it. Now, I don't understand the palate in this situation. I didn't really look it up in the manners and customs books for how you like cook up some grain and eat it. But whatever they did, they were eating it for nourishment. It means they weren't really just saying, hey, let's take a Sunday dinner lunch, you know, because we're tired from a Sunday days of ministry. No, they're on the field. They have a way to eat and they need nourishment. They need grain. And they go for it right there. But there's a watching audience waiting for them. The accusers, empowered by Satan, these Pharisees, these religious leaders are saying, you are out of bounds from the law because up, you're eating and it's on Sabbath. And so that's a kind of work. And so you can't do it. That's how they're applying, misapplying the law. And it's amazing to understand the context is one of nourishment. Because if you see in the text, it says specifically the disciples were hungry. They weren't doing this out of leisure. They're doing this out of survival. They're doing it out of necessity. In the ministry, the laborer is worthy of his wage. The, the, the minister is like an ox that you shouldn't muzzle while he's threshing, right? You got to feed and you got to live as you work and as you minister. You don't want to deprive the ministers so they can keep preaching, so they can keep working. The Pharisees, totally blind to this. They don't see Jesus. They don't see ministry. They don't see mission. They just see law and they see rule breaking. And they say, this is a foul because the Sabbath matters so much and you are out of bounds in what you are doing. It's not good. That's the action. Number two, the accusation. Let's unpack that. But when the Pharisees saw it, Notice they see something. What they see is, up. Oh, you're out of bounds. They saw it. They said to them, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And you say, where are they coming from? How do they have any weight behind their accusation? Well, you got to understand that the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, the people of God that were being gathered and and collected under the loins of Abraham and Sarah and populated as God's people to transform the world as, as the nation of Israel. All of that sign was through the sign of circumcision, showing, showing separation and cleanliness as a people of God. And they were populating, they're going towards the promised land. And, and God at Mount Sinai, uh, 
gives Moses the law. And, and the second covenant, which is, which is following, or the covenant after the Abrahamic covenant, that is following the Abrahamic covenant and building it is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of Moses. Covenant means promise. It's promise that God is blessing you as a family. It's his promise to the family of God. And the Mosaic covenant was based on obedience. You need to obey and yield to the law of God. And so the sign of that covenant, like, much like circumcision was for Abraham, this sign is the Sabbath. The Sabbath day, remembering it and keeping it holy was what mattered so much. Because it was all based on God being the creator. Remember, God in six days created all of the world. Everything, the heavens, the earth. And then he rested on the seventh day. This rest day was the seventh day and it was the day of completion saying, this is my creation and I'm looking upon it as very good. It's a pronouncement of perfection. It's harmony within the Trinity. And it's saying, this is going to be my creation and you are the family of God. And so as the family of God on Sabbath, you need to be still and know that I am God. You're giving all glory to God in faith. It's a commitment of family. Exodus chapter 20 talks about that. You can see it in verse 9 through 11. You're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're to cease from all of your work. So that's that's the um, idea behind all of this. But there's an anecdote. There's a story in Numbers that I, I just have to think was in the back of the minds of the Pharisees. And it was about the man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Do you ever remember reading that? This man was brought to trial, court, and taken outside the camp. And you're going to read, he was killed for what he did on the Sabbath. Numbers 15, 32. It says, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron, and to, and to all the congregation, they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Verse 35, and the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now again, does here's the question and the reason I bring this up as a bible study is because these are the kind of questions I ask when I'm sitting there and somebody's preaching sabbath or something like this to me does this punishment fit the crime all right I mean I want my boys to pick up some sticks in my backyard right now right I mean what is the big deal why is this immediate death well like I said the sabbath was the sign of this covenant The Sabbath was the signature sign of God to say, listen, you are either understanding this, grasping this, you are committed to the covenant community of the family of God, or you are running out into the interstate highway and you're going to get hit by a car. That's what the sign of the covenant means. Covenant keeping means it was this this bilateral community. We will obey all that you say. We are committed. And God is saying, commit yourself. And this commitment means that you are in safety in the covenant community. But just like a little child that you say, don't run out into the interstate or don't run out to the highway. Um, If this man was saying, I don't want in the covenant community. I don't care about the Sabbath. I am going to be an abject rebellion to it. It doesn't matter exactly what he was doing, but he was doing something with a rebellious heart. 
saying, I don't care about being in. And so because of that attitude, we don't have the detailed context. We don't know how many sticks or why or what his attitude was, but he was demonstrably in rebellion, abject rebellion, thumbing his nose at God. And God said, that person needs to be struck dead. You say, well, what's a parallel to something like that? Well, think about this. Think about it within the church and church discipline, Matthew 18. Um, does, does a particular sin get you kicked out of the church? No, no, there's no particular sin that gets you kicked out of the family of God. God, God's grace covers all sin, but I'll say this, any sin that you don't repent of that you let fester and grow in your heart, that could get you kicked out of the family of God. What do you mean by that? Well, first, Matthew 18 says people confront you, one person privately. It's a close circle. Hey, I see this in your life. You need to give this sin up. This is accountability. This is not an accusation. There's a fine line between accusation and accountability. Accusation, bad. False accusation, really bad. Accountability, it might hurt a little bit and sting to be exposed by somebody pointing it out. Accountability, very, very good. You want this, but the accountability comes. It's gracious. It's humble. You're trying to restore a person in the faith. You're trying to build them up. You're seeing what's wrong. Then two people come. Then three people come. You're gathering around them. It's an undetermined period of time. You're praying with that person. Please repent of that sin. Please see the light. No, no, no. Then step three, it's brought to the whole family of God. The whole covenant community of the church is saying, Listen, we need to go after this person and help and pray for this person. We want them to be restored. They reject it again and again. And finally, it's determined. It's stage four. We are going to treat that person. This is what Matthew 18 says to do. Treat that person as an unbeliever. It's even more graphically displayed in 1 Corinthians 5, where it said that of a person who was committing unrepentant, incestuous sin, being divisive in the church, that person is being delivered over to Satan. When a person is that hard-hearted in abject rebellion within the body of Christ, it becomes corrosive. I was reading about Hymenaeus and Philetus today in 2 Timothy about how their gossip was upsetting whole families and it was spreading like gangrene. That kind of person needs to be put out of the church because they are showing themselves to not truly be a Christian in the first place. And they need discipline. They need to be shown the door until they will come back like the prodigal and say, I repent. I want in the family of God. You welcome them with open arms and say, we forgive you. We love you. We cover it. And we will not even ever bring it up again. That's the gospel. That's glory. In this case, under the old covenant, that person was doing old covenant Um, abject rebellion, and that person was worthy of death. You say, is that New Testament? Well, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 talks about the Lord's table when people were gathering for, for worship around the Lord's supper. And in that context, they were using wine because people were getting drunk. They were doing it in drunken rebellion. And, and they weren't examining themselves. Paul says, look, when you come to the Lord's table, examine yourself and, and meditate and think about the state of your own heart. Because if you take the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, some are falling sick and weak and even dying. You say, what's that about? It's like, I'd never want to take the Lord's Supper if I could make myself sick. Well, again, think about the punishment fitting the crime. A person who's taking the Lord's Supper, like 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about, that person is going to be sick or potentially be killed by God because that's a person in abject rebellion. 
Um, I, as a kid, when I used to take the Lord's Supper, I'd be really scared. I mean, I was nervous about a text like that, but it's, it's not like that. Uh, this is people getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. It's people who are blaspheming God. It's people who are showing themselves not to be a believer, flying in the face of the Lord. That's the kind of danger a person is in in that context, not just you know, thinking through your own heart before you take communion. I think it's good to pray, to confess, to be right with God, to search your heart, to do that when we do that. But I don't think anybody's in threat if they're just doing it in normal Christian, you know, examination. That's different. Does that make sense? So I'm just trying to make the point that the, the Pharisees were overreaching by using something like um, the story in Numbers to say the disciples were committing a foul that is a high crimes and, um, you know, penalty um, that, that needs to be repented of. What you have is Jesus responds. He responds to the action and the accusation. He responds to the accusation with two anecdotes. Two anecdotes. Look at verses 3 and 5. These are Old Testament anecdotes. So they're using the Old Testament, and Jesus is responding with truth. You don't fight people. You fight for truth. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Let's stop there. This scenario takes us back to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21 is where David, who as a young man, um, he, he became an adversary to Saul. Now, it wasn't David's fault. David was just living his life. He, he slew Goliath because Goliath was against God. And he, it was a very public display of, of David and how he was going to be God's king after Saul. And then, you know, Saul got jealous. David's the one who slays 10,000s to your thousands, right? There was jealousy there. There's Jonathan and David have this relationship and this best friendship where Jonathan's trying to keep David alive because he knows his dad is angry at him and he's been throwing spears at him. And so they, they conspire. Look, if I shoot the short arrow, you can stay. If I shoot the long arrow, you need to go. He shoots the long arrow. David's like, okay, I'm out of here. So he's on the run. And he's running for his life with his mighty men with him, with his little army. And he's hungry. He's hungry to the point of desperation. He comes up to Ahimelech in 1 Samuel 21, and he's coming to the tabernacle. It says, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. This is the high priest. Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling and said to him, why are you alone? And no one is with you. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. This is a false accusation. Do you see that? False accusation and I'm running for nourishment. Let no one know anything I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Verse three, now then, what do you have on hand? I've made an appointment. Do you have any food? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. That's the context. They're not trying to be disrespectful to the tabernacle. They're not trying to eat bread they're not supposed to eat. They're just starving to death. 
Verse 4, And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us. As always, when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. There's one person, one classification of a person that's able to eat the bread of the presence in the tabernacle without being judged, without being penalized, perhaps without being struck dead in the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies. And that was the high priest. The high priest could do that. The priest could do that. Because they were, basically, they were basically bringing warm bread before the altar of God to say, God, you are the bread of life. You are our sustenance. You are our help. You're the nourishment of our souls. And we're going to eat this on your behalf. And then we're going to replace more warm bread in your presence to continue to worship you. But in this extenuating circumstance, even though David was not a priest and his men were not priests. There was an order, orderly way for the priest to look into the motive of their hearts. They're not trying to disrupt anything. They're not trying to be disrespectful. And they've kept themselves holy from women and women have been kept from them. They're holy in this moment. And so based on motive, there is an exception made where these men could eat the bread and do it righteously. That's what Jesus is bringing up, it's the perfect parallel to the moment. You're on mission, you're in ministry, your motive is right, you're trying to do the right thing. And he said that just as David's men, these disciples did right by eating the grain. Verse 4, look at that again in Matthew 12. It's, which is not lawful. It was not lawful for them to eat either. That was the exact same phrase that the Pharisees used in verse 2, not lawful. But then he goes on, verse 5, he uses sarcasm, the second anecdote. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple, look at this word, profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, the priests were hard workers on, on Sabbath day. Sabbath day was like our Sunday. They're working hard. They're earning their living. They're doing what they do. They were, they, were, they were supplied by the temple work in the work that they were doing, setting the table for worshipers, bringing sacrifices. According to Numbers, there was a Sabbath sacrifice that would happen regularly along with other ones. They're working hard. But if you just read that superficially, you say, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. We're keeping the sign of the covenant. What are these priests up to? Well, they're working hard. You likewise are called to work hard in the Lord. Christianity is not a passive arrangement. We're called living sacrifices. First Peter calls us ro- the royal priesthood of God. The first Corinthians chapter 12, 13 and 14 calls us the body of Christ with many gifts and many varieties of ways to serve. We serve in the strength that God supplies, first Peter chapter four. That's the mission. We're offering sacrifices of praise and we're doing it while we rest in the Lord. And that's the point. Jesus is saying, these men were not out of line. My disciples were right with God, and they were doing the work of the ministry in an extenuating circumstance where they needed to eat and provide for themselves even on the Sabbath. They weren't profaning the temple just like these, um, the priests weren't profaning the temple. It's amazing. When you think about it, 
Jesus is right there. It's amazing. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is overseeing their worship. He is overseeing their work. They're eating that grain in the presence of Jesus Christ. Could be more appropriate than that as they saw that God had provided for them. John 7, is the, it's the same point that's made. Listen to the words of Jesus from John seven twenty two. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, meaning from Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so, does, so that the law may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole? Do you judge? Do not judge by appearances, but judge what with right judgment. In other words, if people are circumcised on the Sabbath, if there's that kind of surgical work on the Sabbath that's permitted, that's allowable, that, that was based in the Abrahamic covenant and then being applied in the Mosaic covenant, if that's allowable, can I also functionally heal somebody and make them whole on the Sabbath? Like, are you losing your mind? People lose their minds when they go under the works yoke, when you go under the religious yoke, when you try to solve life in your own strength and your own flesh instead of turning your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We rest in thee, our shield and our defender. He's our hope. He's all we have. He's all we need. He's our sufficient Lord Fight for truth and recognize that Jesus is Lord. There's going to be in the next three verses one point that's made, and these are our last three points. It's three answers. Three answers. We have an action, one accusation, two anecdotes, and three answers. That'll wrap it up. Three things. Number one, Jesus is higher than the temple. He's higher than the temple. Verse um, verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Are you missing the point that I'm standing right here? They were so blind by their religious accusation. They were missing Jesus. They're outside of the temple even, in the field, and they're missing Jesus. Jesus is greater than the temple of old. He's greater than the temple of Ahimelech in the tabernacle. He's greater than the temple that was built um, by the Lord. Uh, It's amazing. And then when the children of Israel were exiled and they came back. There's this thing called second temple Judaism. It's where it was the corruption of the temple and the 400 dark years in the intertestamental period ensued and took place. Second temple Judaism. Jesus is better than all of that. He's greater than all of the temple. He's also second higher than sacrifice. Verse seven. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What's going on here? This is a phrase taken from Hosea. You remember the, the book of Hosea is talking to, it's the minor prophet preaching against the northern kingdom of Israel. Northern kingdom of Israel was an abject rebellion. They were going to be... Um, taken and exiled away by Assyrian captivity, 722 BC, 700 plus years before the coming of Christ, God sent his marauding um, enemies, the Assyrians, to go swoop in and take captive the northern kingdom and take them away. And so Hosea was, as a prophet, um, to marry this woman named Gomer, who was um, someone who lived in abject rebellion and lived in whoredom against God. 
and was so sinful that it was supposed to leave the bad taste in Israel's mouth to show them what they were doing wrong and why they were going to be judged. Hosea for this is called the deathbed prophet of Israel. It's the foreshadowing of this siege from Assyria. Why do I say all of that? It's because Jesus is quoting from there to say, if you'd gotten the point from this story, you would understand why the disciples could eat even on the Sabbath. It's because you're going for the heart before the practice. Look, when you come on Sunday mornings, if you come and just sing superficially, that perhaps is doing more damage to your, to your heart than you know. If you're coming and learning the Bible and having your head puffed up with knowledge, but you're not really believing it, if your heart really isn't engaged, that's dangerous duty. That's difficult stuff to work through. You don't want your heart, your heart to be hardened up by that. You want to keep it soft. You want to be repentant and realize that a soft heart of mercy goes with the work of bringing a sacrifice. And if you don't have one and you have the other, you have a problem. You have a problem. If you say, I have faith, but I don't do anything about it, then that's false faith. If you do a bunch of stuff, but you don't have faith in a soft heart, then that's just religious hypocrisy. You have to have both. They both go together. They both go together. The soft heart and and the willing spirit and the act go together. Mercy and true worship go hand in hand, and you cannot have one without the other. Outward conformity, no matter how precise or how holy you think it is, will ultimately be a disaster in your own life. Religious fakery, you know the worst thing you can do to your kid in the home is be a fake. Hypocrisy kills the kid. Don't forget that. And even the other, if you're single, if you're, you know, if kids are out of the home or you never had kids, your life is being evaluated by others. So if you're soft and you're repentant and you're real about your faith, that it has the reverse powerful effect to win people to Jesus. Let's finish with verse 8. This is the last point. Jesus is not only higher than the temple, higher than sacrifice, he's higher than Sabbath. He's higher than the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the title, third person title that he gives himself more often than any other title in all of the New Testament. It's the reference to Daniel 7, the Son of Man will come back in the clouds. It's when the Lord comes back in Revelation 19 and slays the nation, slays his enemies, and leaves a bloodbath here. The Son of Man, that's me. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see? Do you make the connection? The sixth literal day creation, that was me speaking everything, ex nihilo, something out of nothing, into existence. Into existence, And on the seventh day, I declared this day to be holy so that you would be still and know that I am God. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the master, the curios of the Sabbath. In other words, he's the creator. He's the object of worship. The Sabbath was about him. We rest in Jesus, not in being a rule keeper or under the law. You can't lock Jesus in a cage and try to bind him with his own law that he's the Lord over. It's like, how do we defend the gospel? We don't have to defend the gospel. We really don't even have to defend Jesus. Martin Luther said, the gospel or the word of God is like a caged lion. We just have to let it out. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. We don't fight people. We fight for truth. We contend earnestly for our faith, the faith. Romans 14, 5 speaks of Sabbath in this way. A lot of people will make Sabbath in a modern day um, 
as a modern day guilt trip. And they'll apply it to Sunday morning. They'll say, look, you know, this is our Sabbath rest Sunday, so you can't cut the grass. My kid pulled that on me. I'd say, well, you're doing double grass, you know. I mean, come on. And the leaves and the sticks, too. But don't be rebellious because bad things could happen. I don't know. There are denominations, Seventh-day Adventists and those who will try to put that kind of legalism on top of people. We have to watch out for that. Romans chapter 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We have to be preferential to each other with stronger and weaker brothers. I understand that. When the accusations come, they'll roll off your back when one thing is happening in your heart. It's when you're saying... Jesus, you are all sufficient. You're all I need. You're all I need. I'm not going to fight that person. I'll respond in gentleness and humility with truth and rest in the all-sufficient Savior who is the Lord of the Sabbath. 